Jeff, Miss Natalie, she can't just sing, she can sing. Sang. That was good. That was really good. Great message in that as well. So good to be back with you. We've been out a couple of weeks, and it's been great to uh, have time with family, time of rest. Thank you to Pastors Todd and Matt, and uh, I am so glad to be back. I'm actually glad we're back in multiple services. Um, we have no room to really grow in one when we're, when we're here, uh, although I gave the easy ones to those guys. You know, they'll thank me later, but I'm glad we're in two because I had enough energy. I needed to have two today, so... I need you to uh, take your Bibles and head right to the beginning, right there in Genesis, chapter 1. Genesis 1, brand new series starting. We're going to be in it a long time. We'll take a lot of breaks, but we're going to be in Genesis a while. I'm not going to try to even come close to doing all 50 chapters. I'd like to at least get four or five chapters in this year, so we'll see how that goes. But this week and next week, we'll be in Genesis 1-1, okay? So we're going to just kind of sink in, going to go deep. And we're talking about this, Genesis fact or fiction. Fact or fiction. If it's true, if it's a fact, then it makes all the difference in this life and in the life to come. If it's fiction, if it's mythology, particularly these first 11 chapters, if it's mythology, then that changes things. That changes the way we respond. But, of course, you already know how I'm going to take it. You already know that I'm leaning into the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, because it's not just about me. I have a wife and four kids and now a grandbaby, and we have a family that I want to make sure we are leading down the path of truth. Why in the world would we want to take people down a path of error and falsehood? And so each chapter we're in, we're going to learn a verse. This verse we're going to learn for chapter one is verse 27. Do you know there's so much controversy about this verse right now? But this verse could not be any more clear. And so let's say Genesis 1, 27 together. Now in a few weeks, we'll actually get to studying it and unpacking it in a way that I never thought I would have to. But we're going to be looking at Genesis 1, 27. Let's say it together. You ready? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Is that complicated to anybody else other than the people at Facebook? That is not complicated, but that's what it says. So we are created imago dei, in the image of God, and that makes all the difference. In fact, let me tell you that I had prayed through this at least six months about what do we really need in our day and time. And I believe what's happening is an attack really on the core of what God gave us as good and very good first, which was actually the institution of family. Before government, our primary fight's not with government, although some of the decisions being made are, are crazy right now, and we're praying against some of these mandates and other things coming, but let me tell you, our, our primary issue's not government because that wasn't made first. Our primary issue's not even culture. Really where this thing goes back to is the first real relationship God creates on this earth is family, and we're having an attack on family, and I thought it would be very important for us to unpack not only the veracity and the historicity, meaning the truthfulness and the historical accuracy of the Genesis account, but if you can get this right, everything else falls in place. It's really just been the last two to 250, some would even say maybe up to 300 years, but certainly no more than three centuries that we've had such an attack on the truth of biblical Christianity and the creation narrative. I started to put together notes for chapter one. 
And as I was compiling my notes, and I'll normally drop and paste those into a Word doc and separate them out, and I have some systems where I can search the different notes, commentary sets, other books, I got to 128 single-space pages of notes just on the opening of the chapter, and I decided to stop because I don't want your eyes to blur over. I don't want you to fall back in your head and go, what is he talking about? I wanted to try to pare this down and keep it fairly simple. But let me say, with 128 pages down to what I'm going to give you to this week and next, I'm painting with a very wide brush. And I can't say everything I want to say. In fact, I cut out a lot of things I did want to talk about. But I want you to remember that all of the evolutionary theories that are swirling out there, all that's being taught in most schools, all that's being assumed by most who are talking about creation is some form or fashion of Darwinian evolutionary theory. It's some offshoot of that. It'll have nuance, it'll have variant, it'll be uh, microevolution or some forms of age, day, stage, gap theories. We're going to talk about all that next week. But essentially, all evolutionary theories boil down to three elements. Some argue two, but I'm going to argue three. Time plus chance plus matter. Some say only time and matter. But Matter had to come from somewhere, stuff, atoms, and the problem with every evolutionary theory, Darwin himself had not fully worked it out, but the problem with every one of them is the problem we're going to talk about in the coming weeks of infinite regress. So even if there was this insanely dense massive ball and then there was this big bang, where did the ball come from? So the problem of infinite regress, if we continue to go back, how do we end up with evolution? Well, the reality is evolution and biblical truth simply don't accord. Some of you in your faith are trying to make two things compatible that are incompatible. And some of you think you're protecting your faith by doing so. And I would argue that if you'll take God at his word, you'll find that it takes actually far less faith to believe the creation narrative than the hogwash called evolutionary theory in any of its forms. And so what we're going to actually discover, and I'm going to make some folks upset over the next few months. I'm going to make some folks question a lot of things. Next week in particular, we're going to get pretty controversial. And everything you would hear in popular culture on this earth and this universe, I'm going to try to unpack. But I think if you'll give it an honest hearing and you'll come to the Scripture with an open heart, you'll find that it accords with reality. Faith and reason are not opposites. Science and biblical truth are not at odds. Those things are married beautifully together in the mind of God, and I believe they're married together for us if we understand what the Bible is setting out to do and what it's not setting out to do. I'm reading this year the, the Adrian Rogers Legacy Bible. Dr. Rogers was the longtime pastor of Bellevue over in the Memphis area of our state, a great, great pastor and leader. And he has these, uh, Adrian Rogers has these Adrianisms in the Bible, these little sayings that are quoted throughout. And one of the ones that he says is this in Genesis 1-1 when he's commenting on that as I'm reading. And I hope you're reading your daily Bible reading or whatever plan you're using. I hope you're doing something. Don't jump off the horse. It's just January. Keep riding. And so in Genesis 1-1, he says this. If you can get past Genesis 1-1, you won't have any difficulty with miracles. And he's right. If you'll take by faith what we read today, and then you'll see how this faith accords with reality. I'm not telling you believe it on blind faith. I'm not saying take God at his word on blind faith. You weren't there. You didn't see it happen. I wasn't there, but nor was Darwin, nor were any of the pseudoscientists who claimed that it's time and chance and matter and we arose from primordial slime and here we are. Wrong. Uh, Dr. Rogers goes on to say evolution is not science. It is science fiction. And I totally agree with that assessment. 
Let me share a poem with you written from the perspective of the evolutionist. Once I was a tadpole beginning to begin. Then I was a frog with my tail tucked in. Then I was a monkey in a coconut tree. Now I am a professor with a PhD. That's about right. That's about right. Well, I too have an earned PhD. And it may not be in that field, but it is in the field of the study of God, in the field of theology, specifically applied theology. And I have conducted highly scientific observable experiments with my children's bedrooms, and I have discovered that things never get better left on their own. There has to be intervention of the Father. It's the only way. Leave your house alone. Leave your garden alone. Just try to take time, chance, and matter and make anything evolve, and you'll find chaos theory will ensue. It's absolute lunacy that we have bought in the last few hundred years into this fallacy where things aren't jumping species, things aren't changing the way the world would have us to believe. It's the same old story. You have tried to take this piece, this piece, this piece, and this piece and connect dots that were never intended to connect. You've heard maybe this illustration. Imagine a tornado going through a junkyard and assembling a fully functional Boeing 747 airplane. What are the chances? 0.0. But what if you had lots of tornadoes? And once if you had lots of junkyards? I would submit to you, but by the law of chance, you could have an infinite number of tornadoes and junkyards, and you would never assemble a fully functional aircraft because you were taking intelligent design out of the equation. You were taking a designer away. You can't throw up parts and pieces and shake them and then take enough time and create a smart watch. If you can't create a watch, you need a watch maker. And when it comes to evolutionary theory and all of its variants, it is absolute lunacy to look around at the complexity of this wonderful world, at the intricacy of the universe, and even on a microcosm, on a small level, and think that time, chance, and matter got us here. If you believe in this garbage, go home and don't touch your aquarium for the next hundred years and see how that turns out for you. Things are not evolving in the way that pseudoscience would have us to believe. Where did I come from? Primordial slime? Single-celled organisms? Birds? Fish? Monkeys? Absolutely not. The reason the study of Genesis, fact or fiction, is so important is because you need to know that you were fashioned by the hands of a loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present gracious God. You need to know that. There are going to be some people out there that are going to try to push you. I would remind you, as Dr. Rogers said, the Bible doesn't start trying to explain God's existence. Part of what makes him God is that the, he is the uncreated creator. You uh, walk away from the problem of infinite regress when you start with the God who is there. When you start with the one who always was and is and will be, God doesn't need proof. Sometimes the atheist will swagger up to the believer and say, prove there is a God. Dr. Rogers said, I just grin and I'd like to reply, prove there is no God. 
The reality is you weren't there nor was I in the beginning. But there is overwhelming proof in this creation to a divine hand. The fingerprints of God are everywhere if you'll learn to see them. If you'll learn to pay attention, even what we think we see is only apparent. And next week, I'm going to dig into some very controversial things, and some of you maybe have never even considered the information I'm going to give you next week. But today, I want to start very, very simply. We're going to begin the journey very simply. We're packing the bag today. We're just getting ready to put on the backpack today. So we just finished deer season, turkey season starting in the spring, and when I get ready for turkey season, I have some stuff to do. I have to get my turkey vest out. I have to check my calls. I have to chalk everything up. I make sure I have the proper equipment. I make sure I have the netting for my face, and I make sure all the camo's in order and everything is ready. And you don't just jump out into the turkey woods. You really do prepare. In a much greater way, for this journey through Genesis, we're going to prepare today. And we're going to prepare next week. This week, we're going to look at the audience. I'm sorry, we're going to look at the author and the audience. We need to see who wrote it, to whom was it written. We need to set it within its cultural context and its time stamp. Next week, we get a little more controversial. We look at the aim. That's not so controversial. But we also look at the age. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time next Sunday unpacking for you what I see as the most probable age of creation the age of this earth, the age of the universe as we know it. I'm going to go against most everything you've ever heard, but I think if you'll hear me out and hear the biblical evidence out with an honest heart, then you'll find that these things coalesce beautifully and there's no contradiction. All right. Now, because I always do this and I think it's good and right and reverent, I'm going to ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word, although you won't be standing very long. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Do y'all have this memorized? If you don't, you probably ought to just go and commit it to memory, all right? It says this. It's actually less words in the Hebrew than even in the English, but we read, in the beginning. When was that? We'll talk about it next week. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, very few words here, but a lifetime of truth to unpack. If we can believe this, if we can believe in the beginning God, and then if we can believe you, O oh Lord, created everything else that follows in the pages of this book and the pages of our life will come into clearer perspective. So many people are trying to blend pseudoscience and biblical faith. I pray that we would be true to your word and that we would see that science and faith don't have to contradict. Faith and reason don't have to live at odds. They can actually dwell in the same house. That good, intelligent, investigative people have looked at this up one side and down the other. And we can walk away saying the creation narrative does accord with reality. The way God did it is the way it happened. We don't have to bow to current criticism or culture. We don't have to bow to a community out there that is doing everything they can to push you out of the equation. When we understand why current evolutionary theory came to the fore, when we study it, not just scientifically, but historically in its cultural context, we understand why it came. We understand that it was a season of humanity seeking to be independent of their creator. Seems nothing new is under the sun, Lord. 
from our first parents, we've tried to be independent of you, but we keep coming back to intelligent design and the intelligent designer. Thank you, God, for making us in your image. Now speak to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. So let's get these four foundational elements under our belt. Two this week, two next. Author, audience, then aim and age. The author, okay? The author. It's generally agreed that Moses, Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. Now you say, wait a minute, Moses is not even around yet. You're right. He's not introduced until Exodus, right? Remember, his mom and dad have him. Uh, little Egyptian boys are being uh, slaughtered, and so he's hidden. He's put in the basket. Moses means drawn from water. Pharaoh's daughter finds him. He's brought into the home of Pharaoh. But Moses is a great leader of the people of God. But there are lots and lots of biblical characters introduced before Moses. So why Moses? Well, what we have is in the Bible, we have the Pentateuch. Pentateuch, penta means five. Toikos means like a collection of books. So the five-book collection, the Pentateuch, is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Tradition tells us that Moses authored almost all of those. There's some commentary later in Deuteronomy that's said to be a later edition. That's fine. But tradition, up until just a few hundred years ago, was that Moses actually penned these events. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 say that Scripture's never just been of one's private origin, but that God inspired men of old and that they wrote what the Spirit of God told them. Jesus himself attributed Mosaic authorship to the Pentateuch, including Genesis. And so I'm going to go with Jesus here and say, I believe Moses is the guy God used to actually write it down. But of course, Moses' name does not appear in the book of Genesis. It appears in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So strictly speaking, you could jot down in your notes, according to Genesis, it's an anonymous book, an anonymous book. It was considered, though, the Pentateuch, one book in Jewish tradition, and Mosaic authorship was the established view of the Christian and Jews until, again, mid-18th century, folks, so not that long ago. Critical scholars began to look at the book and have questions and said, well, it looks like there's a little different style of writing over here than there is over there. Still in ancient Hebrew, but a little different. But I'm going and going, wait a minute. I write differently depending on what's going on or who I'm writing for. If you've had a bad day and you look back at your email, it might not sound like you would normally want to sound. If you've written love letters before, well, you don't want to write that way to everybody. If I've written an academic paper versus a sermon, my sermons, when I manuscript my sermons, they look very different than if I was going to turn this in for academia. I would change the format, the sentence structure. I certainly wouldn't put in the illustrations like I have in my manuscript. So you write differently, but a guy named Julius Wellhausen, a critical scholar, comes along and he says, well, I think we have at least four literary sources of the Pentateuch. He named them J-E-P-D. I'm not going to unpack all of that. I spent a lot of years studying it in school and came to the very clear conclusion that it's absolute baloney. And so this idea that you had to take all these different groups of people writing the Scripture, ridiculous. If God is God, he can work through the man Moses, and it makes sense. Think about it. First 40 years of his life, Moses is raised up in Egyptian culture. He learns the language of the Hebrew well. He, he is a Hebrew, so he's, he's having influence and time with his people. He actually rises up to protect one and murders an Egyptian, so God casts him out. He goes into uh, Midian, where he would meet his wife, and he would become a shepherd for 40 years until he encounters the Lord again. And then he comes back to lead the people out of Egyptian bondage. So he's very well acquainted both with his Egyptian culture and Hebraic culture and language. 
And he's the perfect guy. God comes down. He meets with him on Mount Sinai. His face shines so much they have to put a veil over it. So Moses is a man that's very close to the Lord. It would make perfect sense that over the next 40 years, he lives to be 120. So 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. In the last 40 years, it would make perfect sense that God would use a man like Moses with all that time they have wandering around, and then they camp, and they'll stay for quite a while, several months often at a time, and then they'll move. But it would make perfect sense that God would speak to him and through him and say, now I'm going to let you in on what happened in the beginning. Because in the beginning, when that's written, nobody's around save the triune God himself. And I'll prove to you it's a triune God, even from the language of chapter 1. Now, the date of this writing can't be fixed with certainty. But again, with Moses' human author, it's probably during the wilderness sojourn. I, for one, and most conservative Bible scholars take an early date for the entrance of Israel into Canaan under Joshua. So let's assume... 1445-ish for the Exodus. Moses is pinning this somewhere around 1400-ish B.C., or B.C.E. if you prefer. So before Christ comes, Moses is actually writing this down. So for us living today, we're somewhere around 3400 to 3500 years removed in timing of when it was written. Not when it happened. Come back next week, we'll talk about that. Not when it happened, when it was written down. And so, look, Moses, or it's anonymous, but ultimately, what does the Bible say? The ultimate author of this is God himself. God himself. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All of it is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the person of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, Whether Moses wrote it or not, God ultimately penned it. I do think Moses makes a lot of sense given his background. Now, let's look at the audience. It's a twofold thing here again. Israel, God's chosen people, because the book of Genesis tells us how Israel came to be through Abram, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob wrestled with God. He had 12 sons. God renames him Israel. Literally, he's named Israel. So the 12 sons of Israel become the 12 tribes of Israel. The birth of the Jewish people happens in Genesis. And so it's written specifically to them and about them. But then, of course, it's written for everybody else. Now, this is not hard to understand. When I was in school, I would write a a theological paper, a treaty on something, and a professor would say, now look, if these are well-written and and the subject matter is right, I may submit some of these papers to a theological journal or to a magazine or whatever, and that was fine. What I knew I was doing was writing for the professor or writing for his grader, but also I had in my mind, maybe this goes on, and so some of the things I wrote back then would go on to be published a book review or whatever it would be, a particular theological position. And so you would write for two audiences. You would say, okay, I've got the immediate audience, in this case Israel, but then I've got the broader audience. And so creation narrative is not simply telling us how Israel was born. It's telling us how you were born and how I was born and how we all came to be. And so Moses is portraying God here as the founder and creator of all life, not just the Jewish people. God created Israel, but God is the same one who created all the world. And so he is sovereign. And so while God is establishing a nation and her laws and her customs and her beliefs, he is establishing all the nations. And the implementation and the, uh, the, the implications, rather, for this are tremendous. It means, first, everything that exists must be under God's control. The creation is in subjection to its creator. 
that forces of nature and even enemies and creatures and objects and those things that became pagan deities, well, they would never impose any danger to the one true and living God. He created them, including Satan himself, by the way. And the account reveals the basis of the law. If God was before all things and made all things, how foolish would it be for us to have any God before him? If other gods don't really exist, why don't we worship the one true and living God? And the commandments of God find their rationale here in the creation narrative of Genesis. The reason that people don't want to believe this is they don't want to believe in a God they have to be under his authority. They don't want to believe in a God they have to submit to. Genesis, of course, covers more time than any other book in the Bible. It comes from the plight of man who was created in God's image to live forever originally. From the moment of conception, we're created as eternal beings, but because of sin, we became destined for the grave. And the book leads us anticipating a redemptive intervention of God. So let me get back into something some of you know. I know our students know this well. Pastor Brian and his team have done a great job teaching this in different ways. And so let me give you the big picture of Genesis, which is really the big picture of the Bible, because it's vital to understand his story. It's what Pastor Jeff was hinting at when he mentioned this earlier. His story, history, the meta-narrative, the big picture, the big, the big story. What is it? Well, it starts with creation. Guys, I'm going to submit to you over the coming months, if we'll get this right, we will not struggle with anything else. I'm not saying we won't ever have doubts, we won't ever have challenges, we won't ever have problems. I'm telling you when it comes to your Christian faith, if you will nail this down and quit worrying about what all the pseudo-intellectuals are trying to tell you about this, if you'll believe God at his word, not blindly, not blindly, but based on reason and rational evidence, if you will take God at his word, then you'll come to re realize that you are created in his image. He is not created in yours. You are made with a plan and a purpose, a good plan and a great purpose. But, like often happens, the parent says, hey, do this, 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 and this. And by the way, don't do that. And the child tends to want to do that. So did our first parents, Adam and Eve. God said, look at all of these good things I'm giving you. Stay away from that. That's not good for you. And they immediately make a beeline to that. And the tempter causes them to fall. And in their fallen state, that's where we land. But even in Genesis, as early as chapter 3, we find that God has a plan to defeat the enemy. God has a plan to defeat Satan and sin and ultimately death. And God gives us a precursor, a preview of that, even in Genesis. God starts talking about Jesus from the very first chapter. And all the way through Genesis, we see pictures of Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity. And so we have this fall, but we begin to come back up into redemption. God buying us back from sin. God bringing us back from the brink of disaster and death. God saying, okay, you're slaves to sin and self, but I have bought you back with a price, the blood of Christ. And so there's this story all through the pages of Scripture, the scarlet thread, the bloodline of Christ in the sacrifice, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. God saying, I'm bringing you back. Why am I bringing you back? Because notice how I've made them, and then this last one's going to align again with creation. We're into restoration. At the end of it all, things are restored into a pre-fall state. 
an Edenic state. So like Eden, like paradise, like the garden. If you were here for my heaven study, I spent a lot of time talking about this. The new heavens and new earth are not new in the sense of out of nothing. They're renewed, recreated. And so what God is doing is he's taking us through history. Now watch this. Watch this big swoop come in and around. Now see that. See, a lot of people think life is, sick, is kind of circular. It's cyclical, right? Be- why? Why, is, why do people think that? Well, because we're born, and we have little teeth and little hair, and we wear diapers, and then a lot of times we get really old, and we have, sorry, but <laughs> little teeth and little hair, and we wear diapers maybe. And so it looks like that, that life is this vicious cycle, and then, oh, there's these plagues, and there's this pandemic, and there's, but it's not cyclical in that sense. Life is linear. There was a beginning of time in the beginning. There'll be an end of time, the eschaton in Revelation, when God will bring it all to its right conclusion. But, and then there's eternity that stretches beyond where we spend eternity with the Lord in heaven as believers. Those that don't spend eternity separated from him in hell, a place never designed for them. But watch what happens. We think life is circular like this. It's not. It's actually much more roller coaster-esque without the loops. Life is much more like this. And any of us that have lived long enough know it. There are mountains, there are valleys. There are sunny days and stormy days, but life is full of ups and downs. But the bigger picture, when you stretch the narrative out over um, the thousands upon thousands of years of human history, and you say, no, no, millions or billions, come back next week. I'll challenge that. So watch. It actually happens this way. Humanity is created in the beginning, perfect and right, good and very good, and they live a very, very short time until, boom, they decide we're going to do it our way, not God's way. And so what we're in today, we're in this bottom suite. Now, God had a plan, and 2,000 years ago, he sent Jesus Christ, perfect, born of man, but also fully God, the perfect God-man who would be tempted as us, yet never sinning, who would pay the price for our sin, who would secure our salvation, who would be our redeemer, like Job cried out for, oh, that there would be a redeemer. And so he would come to redeem us, but we're not there yet. We're still down here somewhere. For those of us that know Jesus, we're moving toward restoration. For those of you that don't know Jesus, you're still down at the bottom of the swell. And so what we have is his story that intersects with our story in time, and eventually there's going to be a restoration in the story where God makes all things new. But we're not there yet. And Genesis is what establishes this whole thing and says this is what's going on. We love a great story. If you're like me and Cindy, we love a great movie. I love something. We watched something last night. It had a weird twist ending. It was kind of, it was way out there. But, you know, if some of you like the M. Night Shyamalan stuff or things that, it just, you, the rug gets pulled out from under you. God's not trying to pull the rug out from under you here. God's trying to say to you, I have a story. And I'm going to show you in the beginning that I'm in charge of this thing. But it's going to go haywire pretty quick. And if you want to understand Sin and suffering and disease and death and heartache and the way the earth groans, the way that the waters rage and the fires blaze and the winds swirl and death enters in even to the littlest bed and you want to see why it is the way it is, but also you want to see how there can be such beauty and such joy and such love and such passion and there can be such an incredible scale all around us of these things from the worst of the the worst and the most horrible of horrors to the greatest of the great and the joys on the mountain.
mountaintop. If you want to understand the narrative, you start in the beginning. You start with Genesis. See, the title wasn't originally there. The title came later when the Old Testament Hebrew was translated into Greek. In the beginning, barashith, doesn't sound like Genesis. You have three words in Hebrew, five words in English. In the beginning, God created. Three words in Hebrew, barashith bara Elohim. Barashith, in the beginning, bara created Elohim, God. What you have is when we take that a barashith from the Hebrew, the beginning, you translate it over, you bring Hebrew into Greek, and you get geneseos, geneseos, and so that's where we get the English word genesis, beginnings, um, source, generation. You get the word generation from that. Also, the best translation, in my opinion, is origin, which is funny that Darwin would use the line origin of species when it couldn't be farther from the truth, but origin, barashith bara Elohim, Creation marks the absolute beginning of the temporal and material world where time and matter begin as we know them. And with God in the picture, you don't have the problem of infinite regress. The Bible says that God created ex nihilo, that's Latin for out of nothing. God did not take this plus this plus this and form and fashion it. He created from nothing. So you and I can be creative, we cannot be creator. Because we can never make something from nothing, ever. And don't let anybody try to fool you into thinking that man can take God's place and create something from nothing. Impossible. We need the raw material given by God. I'll show you that again at the end. But we have Barashit Bara Elohim, and we find that Elohim is a name that occurs 2,570 times in the Old Testament. The ending I am in Hebrew is actually plural, so it's a plural name for God. So right in his name, from the very first time it's used, we get a Trinitarian reference. It's also called plural of majesty, meaning this. When you see someone so great that they are king of kings, you use plural pronouns with them and plural name. So if the king made a declaration, he'd say, we declare. Well, he meant I declare. But with God, he is Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We'll see that work out in these opening chapters. And he's king of kings. And so Elohim would be plural, even though it would take a singular verb. And bara, barashith bara Elohim. Bara is used exclusively with God as its subject in the scripture. It refers to the fact that through instantaneous and miraculous act, God brings the universe, including our earth, into existence. The Genesis account refutes atheism and pantheism and polytheism and, yes, in 99.99% of its forms, evolution. I understand microevolution. I understand the basics of evolutionary theory on a micro level. And the scripture's not necessarily speaking against those minute changes, but I, I steer clear of the word evolution because I've never seen a dog become a cat nor a cat a frog. And you can argue that, well, the fossil record's not complete and we only have this and that. I'm going to get to the fossil record. I promise you, we're going to unpack it. I'm going to get to age. We're going to get to stage. We're going to get to why things look the way they look. And you know what's interesting is it says God created the heavens and the earth. What does that mean? The King James is one of the only renderings that say heaven singular. And it was just a poor rendering. It's plural, heavens. And it's plural because in the Bible it talks of three heavens. There is what we would call our atmosphere. You would go up and you would look to the sky. And on a clear day, you'd see what? 
Carolina blue, right? Praise God. And so you'd look to the sky and you would see heaven. That's the first heaven. You would take Elon's uh, taxi out to outer, what we would call space, and you would see the second heaven, uh, space, or outer space, heaven. And then the place of God's abode, where God dwells, where the Lord Jesus is at his right hand, his very throne room, that beautiful place being prepared for believers is the third heaven. So God creates the heavens and the earth right here, ex uh, nihilo, out of nothing. Now, a lot of things we don't know. We don't know with absolute certainty when all the angelic beings came to be. It would appear that it would be sometime early on day one, or in my opinion, even just before day one, at some point in time. But remember, time is relative for us based on our planet, and God is timeless. See, some of us get hung up in weird details that don't matter to God. Day is as a thousand years, a thousand years a day. Well, how much time has it been for the Lord? How much time has it been for my loved ones who've gone on? They're in a different system, folks. We measure time on our earth. A day would be very different on Venus. A day would be very different on Mars. A year would be very different. Those things are relative to us in our moment, not to God. He's timeless. He's outside of all of these things. But when were the angels created? When did the fall of Satan happen? It would appear to me by Job 38, 7 that beforehand the angels were shouting and, and glorifying God in creation. So it would seem that they were there. It would seem that Satan has already fallen. It would seem that Lucifer had made his choice because he would then very soon tempt Eve and Adam with him in the garden. It would seem that they were already fallen. But the narrative doesn't start there. It starts with God. And it starts with in the beginning God. And that's where we must start, in the beginning, God. And so the Old Testament and the New Testament agree that creation gives a compelling witness to God. And some of you think wrongly today, I can trust the rest of the Bible, I just don't have to trust that Genesis narrative. I don't have to believe that stuff in the beginning. Wrong. If you don't trust the Genesis narrative, you're going to throw out a lot of the Psalms, you're going to throw out a lot of the New Testament, you're going to throw out a lot of the Bible, old and new. If you don't start with in the beginning God, then you can't land where you need to land as a believer, as a child of God. Let me just share with you as I land the plane a couple of, well not a couple, several important scriptures. They're all written in your notes for you in order. Look at them with me on the screen, Psalm 102.25. In the beginning, same language, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. Look at this. I know you know this. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus. And he was in the beginning with God. Look at that. And all things were made through him. Christ is the agent of creation. Colossians teaches us that. So God speaks. Jesus is the agent making it all happen, and, he's, and everything's made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Speaking of the second person of the Trinity, look at Hebrews 1.10, referring back to Psalm 102. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hand. Look at Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you would visit him? Psalm 19.1, you guys know this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth forth his handiwork. I used to love going over to Davis Island, the outer banks of North Carolina, and we would go fish, and there was nothing around except the lighthouse. It's the North Carolina lighthouse with the black diamonds. 
and you have to ferry over and then take four-wheel drives. And we'd stay sometimes a week at a time catching drum, puppy drum, flounder, different kinds of fish over there on the ocean and the sound. And what was cool being that far from land, being out there with only the spinning of the lighthouse, was that when you look up at night on a clear night, you begin to realize just how grand it is and how little you are, but how much God knows you by name and that you were on his mind when he was setting those stars in place. Think about it. You were on his mind. He was thinking of you when he said that. How is that possible? Because he's God. He's the one who always was and is and will be. And we consider, what are you? Uh, How could you even entertain us, Lord? But the firmament shows your handiwork. The heavens are yours, the earth also, the world and all its fullness. You founded them, Psalm 90, before the mountains were brought forth or ever You had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God, Alpha and Omega. Isaiah 44, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you, look at this, from the womb. The birth canal does not confer personhood. If we want to talk about the sanctity of life, it starts in Genesis, right here, created in the image of God. Look at this. He's formed us and fashioned us and knit us in our mother's womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. I mean, you see something gigantic that people have built? Then go look at the Grand Canyon. Then go check out the Alps and see how much greater our God is For this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens, he is God, he who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty. Now this is important for next week. He formed it to be inhabited. That's important. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And then Paul, speaking at Areopagus or the Mars Hill, he talks to the people and says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he's the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. God doesn't live in the house called Grace Baptist Church. God lives in this temple, in your temple, in human temples, but he does not live in temples made with hands. He's too big. He's too great. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead so that they are without excuse. Just because a scientist Just because an astronomer can look far into the heavens and explain with technical terminology why something is and what something is, does not mean they have told us how it got there or what its grander purpose is. Friends, I'm going to unpack some things in the coming weeks, particularly when we get into the series on human relationships and marriage made in paradise, to prove to you that if Darwinian evolution were true, The very love you have and the emotions you feel would not work with reality. The concepts that he espoused of things like survival of the fittest simply do not accord with reality when we see the human condition. And we see the heart of most people, not the anomalies, but the heart of most people. You see, by faith, Hebrews says, We understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. How did it happen, Pastor? Uh, God spoke. But I thought there was a bang. Okay, it went bang, but God did it. I don't know. But God spoke. God made it happen. And you say it's by faith because nobody was there. And you say, yeah, but evolution. No, 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 they weren't there either. 
And there's so little evidence to that garbage anyway. But the things that were, were seen are not made of things that are visible. God didn't take pre-existing things and mash them together. And the conclusion then is you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and they have their being. See, the author of Genesis very likely was Moses. Don't know, it doesn't tell us, but I believe it's God himself. And the audience of Genesis is not only the chosen people of God, but it's us. And the aim of Genesis is to draw us really into a relationship to know this one true and living God. And we'll get into that next week. The age is going to be very interesting for some of you. I'm going to challenge a lot of the assumptions you've had even from childhood. And I hope that you'll at least give me an honest hearing and take the evidence for what it is. I'll close with this. When uh, little Bobby was about seven or eight, we, he wanted to start getting into some building and making some stuff. I got him a little workshop bench. And, and my, my grandpa was a master carpenter. I love to tinker with things, but I'm not a builder kind of a guy. So, so the uh, home improvement stores, I think they still have these. They carry these little kits that you can actually have the wood and the parts, the nails, the hinges, everything. You can have it kind of cut out. And so the first project we ever made when Bobby was little, and then after we made it, we stained it because it looks like this originally. Uh, and I noticed he took all his money out before he let me borrow this. So um, anyway, he still keeps this in his room. Can you see his name? We even stenciled his name in there. I don't know if y'all can see that. Does that come through? Okay, cool. So you know who it belongs to, right? So, um, so we built this together, and it was all flat in a little box, and we built it. And you know what? He was proud of it, and I was proud of it. I still am. It was fun, and we've had a lot of these things since then and a lot of other things. Now he's old enough to do whatever he wants pretty much from scratch. But he never does it without preexisting material. See, you might argue, well, I'm a real carpenter. I cut out my own wood. That's fine. Where'd you get the wood? Well, I grew my own tree. That's fine. Where'd you get the tree? Well, I planted my own seed. Where'd you get the seed? Well, I put it in my own dirt. Where'd you get the dirt? See, you will have the problem of infinite regress if you think you're ever an actual creator. You can make some stuff, but it is the God of the universe who has given you all that you need in your hands to make it. We see how men desire to build how that we as a people have desired to create towers toward the heavens. And that's good. There's not anything wrong with that unless, like Genesis 11, we try to usurp God and say, look at us. Look at how great we are. And yet I have been on every inhabited continent of this planet. I've been in pretty much all of the major cities of this world at some point in my life. And I can tell you that there is absolutely nothing on this earth that can compare to the East Tennessee sunrise God gives us every day. There is nothing that can compare to a ride over the fall of the year when God has painted the trees in his majesty. And you say, Pastor, that's really the chlorophyll being this and that. Use your jargon if you want, but you can't explain it beyond your scientific language. Use your jargon if you will, but you are then devoid of purpose and meaning. If you and I or primordial slime, if we have simply emerged as time, chance, and matter, then what does any of this matter? This little simple chest, which holds coin, 
this little simple thing. There is nobody in this room stupid enough to look at that and say, it just came to be. There is nobody in this room intellectually dishonest enough to say those hinges, over time, they realized that they didn't work over here, so they moved into place. And over enough time, those nails went deeper and deeper to hold that together. And over time, that slot emerged for the coin to fall through. Nobody's that silly. And yet we look at ourselves infinitely more complex, even one cell of our body, and we deny that there is intelligent design behind it. Friends, over the course of these months, I promise you we're going to dig very deeply and we're going to have a good time doing it. But the purpose of it is simple, to remember you were created with a purpose. To, create, to remember that you have a loving God who wants a real relationship with you. And in the beginning, God, that is enough. Stand with me as we go to the Lord. As much as I would, as much as I would love to tell you that Christians don't struggle in this, that would be false. One of the areas of faith that Christians struggle with the most is actually the creation narrative. And we've attempted through crazy theories like theistic evolution and other things, we've attempted to blend science and faith in a way they were never meant to be bedfellows. The reality is this, if you'll be honest in our journey, you'll find that you do not have to abandon your intelligence, you do not have to set aside science. You come to the book realizing this is why it was written and why it was not. And you come to the place of saying there's either a God or there's not. You, you could be polytheistic. There are gods or there are not. But you're going to come to that conclusion. And if there is a God as the Bible says there is, and as I know there to be, then we are accountable to him. We are all estranged from him by birth. We are all running far and fast from God. You know, we have a little curly redhead who's going to be two years old in five days. As she was at our house last night, as much as I love her and as much as I think she's the most precious thing in the world, even though I love my own children most of the time, um, as my, <laughs> kidding, as much as I love little Lucy, her mommy and daddy don't have to teach her to be disobedient or sin. She's hit too early. And she'll tell you if you talk to her. And she's running far and fast from God. But with mama and daddy who love the Lord, grandparents and friends around them that love the Lord, we believe that our God will surround her with his people and his presence. And at the right time, she'll say yes to Jesus. But you see, the only way to say yes is to know that you're made in his image. That God got this thing started. And God's going to bring this thing to its proper conclusion, I believe, sooner than later. So if you want to come today, if you want to receive the Lord, if you want to talk about this, if you want to ask questions, Cindy and I will be right over here, pastors and counselors available to you. I'm going to ask you to pray for something. I rarely step into this arena, but I'm going to ask you to pray for it today because it affects us tremendously. It affects not just us, but a lot of places. I'm going to ask you to pray for God's will with this Supreme Court decision on this latest federal vaccine mandate. 
I'll tell you straight as your pastor, since this is not an endorsement of a candidate but a policy, I am vehemently opposed to this. Not because I'm pro or negative toward vaccines or not, but as an organization with well over 100 employees, this puts a lot of our people in a very bad place for the kind of testing that's being required, the weekly, the, up, the, the uh, mandates that are being put in place. It is trying to force people to do things that some people are not comfortable doing. And I, for one, believe if you feel led to be stuck, be stuck. If you don't, don't. But I don't think our government has the right to force you to do so. Now, you can disagree with me about that. That's okay. I'm, I'm praying, I am personally praying that the justices are wise enough to see this as government overreach and leave us alone, okay? That's all I'm saying. You can disagree, it's fine. You can be wrong in your disagreement, whatever. But I'm, I'm telling you, for this organization with about 250 employees total, full and part-time, it is gonna be really tough on some of our people. And we've, we've got plans in place, whatever we gotta do, but we really, really don't want this thing to go through. So please pray with us toward that end, if you would. And um, let's just leave it in the hands of God. The one good thing with all of this craziness is the CDC, Fauci and the gang, they are not God. And so we've got one who is greater than all of these experts, and he knows the end from the beginning. So let's trust him. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you and we pray, oh God, that you will protect us. We do have some folks that are sick right now. We're not trying to deny that there's a virus. We're not trying to deny two years of evidence of this pandemic. But Lord, there's a lot of sketchy stuff that's been foisted on the people. There's a lot of strange asks that are coming in these days. And to put undue burden on organizations that are of size seems to be very un-American to me. Also, Lord, when we get into trying to be our brother's keeper, as we see in Scripture, that can lead to its own set of problems. Let each man examine himself and do as we are led to do. That is part of what we came to this nation for centuries ago, for freedom. And God, we find our independence from a government that wants to overturn and work over us. And the way that we have true independence is by being fully dependent on our Creator God. So move us now to pray together in these final minutes for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.